0: Good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, why don't you grab them? We'll be in the book of Titus. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, we do have them in the seats in front of you. You, If you don't own one, you can have that. Take that as our gift to you. We'll replace it. But if you'll open your Bibles to Titus, our text today is going to be verses 5 through 9 of chapter 1. And I'll just say happy holiday weekend, happy Labor Day weekend. I hope tomorrow will be special for your family as you uh, hopefully get the day off. A lot, of, a lot of you don't get the day off, but that's okay. I work on Sundays, so. <laughs> uh, but if you get the day off with your family, I hope it's, it's really nice and special. Titus chapter 1 verse 5 says this. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Let's go to the Lord again and ask for his help this morning. Father, we come before you today knowing that it is your spirit that opens our minds and hearts to your truth. And so, Father, we pray together as a church that you would move in this place, that you would open our eyes, that you would help us to see your gospel, see your truth, and see the hope that we can have in Christ. And Lord, I, I, th- I pray as we think about these qualifications for elders that we would take a good hard look at our lives. Do our lives reflect? Do they reflect you? Do they reflect the way that you transform a life through the power and the hope of the gospel? And Lord, I, I pray that this would be encouraging and helpful to all of us as we, as we sit and we ponder a little bit together about your word. We love you. We love your word. We love the way that your word changes us, the way that you use your word in the life of your people. And Lord, I I join with my brother in praying for Kathy and others who are hurting this morning in the passing of Daryl. We pray, Father, that you would be the God of all comfort to them. Today at three at the funeral, Lord, I pray that you would move and encourage and that there would be hope even in the grief, even in the sorrow. I pray for your help this morning. I pray that you would... uh, I can't can't do this, Lord. I can't change hearts. I can't move people. You you can. And so, Father, I pray that you would. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. So I believe that uh, the mission of the... Store called Ikea, or Ikea, or Ikea, however you pronounce it. I think its mission is to humble men who think that they do not need instructions. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Have you ever put one of those things together, those Ikea flat-packed shelves or whatever? I mean, I've tried it. It doesn't look like a shelf when I'm done, but... So we moved to Sioux Falls last month. Uh, When we left our house in Shadron, nebraska we we had these ikea shelves that we decided that we would flat pack again they came flat packed so we decided to take them apart They'd fit better in the moving truck and so i think my son took them all apart uh all these large pieces of furniture that fit um and i had in the back of my mind a question like how are we going to get these things back together again right i don't have the instructions these are old uh that was there and so um, it's like putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. Anyway, so we get here and, uh, you know, you, you guys all showed up and helped us unload our truck. That was awesome. And to my great delight, uh, there were people in the basement putting together these shelves. <laughs> they just took it upon themselves to put these together. And I, I thought that was wonderful and helpful. But I was like, how are they going to, how is this not going to, like, how is this going to work? And um, you, you know how they did it? I just like they didn't have the instructions, you know, printed. You can download the instructions to your phone. They did that, and they could follow them again. Mind blown. It was amazing. I'm not 100% certain of this, but it seems to me that it's very nearly impossible to put IKEA furniture together without instructions. Maybe, maybe not, but here is what I'm 100% certain of. I am certain that we cannot put the church together, the parts that remain, as it were, the phrase that he uses, without the instructions that God has provided for his people. We can't. This doesn't go together our own way. This is God's church. It goes together God's way through his word. People try to do it their own way all the time without regard to God's instruction, but it never works. It never results in a healthy church. It only works the way that God has intended it to when we follow His instructions. We're looking at some of those instructions this morning in this passage. In fact, in verse 5, Paul used the phrase, as I have directed you. That word directed could be translated instruction, as I have instructed you. These are the instructions for how the church should be put together, and we absolutely need these instructions. My plan is to spend a couple of weeks in Titus 1, verses 5 through 9, and I think it will be profitable for us. It would be good for us to take seriously God's instructions for those who would lead his church the kind of character and the kind of confidence that it takes to be an elder. This week we'll focus on the character required to be an elder. And next week, we will think together about where a man's confidence must be placed if he is to serve as an elder, both from this passage. And I think it will be helpful for us to consider not only understanding how the church works, God's instructions for putting the church together, but also for our own growth as Christians, and perhaps especially for men who aspire to grow into Christian men who meet these qualifications, whether God has called you to serve as an elder or not. So like all of scripture, this passage is profitable for us, and my plan is to spend two weeks pressing into that profit for us as a church, and I hope it will be to your profit as a Christian. Today I have two points. I want us to first think together about what Paul means when he says, put into order what remains, and then what it means for one to be above reproach. Verse 5 begins with Paul explaining to Titus why he left him in Crete. And the reason he left him there was to put in order what remains. You could say, put in order what is lacking. What remains could be what is lacking. There was some work left to be done in Crete. That's, what, that's the point there. There was some work left to be done. And Paul wanted Titus to go and do that work. Maybe before we consider what was lacking, what remained... What was still yet to be done, it would helpful for us, it would be helpful for us to think about what was not lacking, what was not lacking. There was a work left, there is a work left for us to do. I think that's plain. We can see that here. It's clear from this passage. But there is also a work that is not lacking, a work that is done. So what is that that is not lacking in the church? What is not lacking is the work that Jesus has done to redeem for himself a people. That's not a work that we complete. That's a work that Jesus completed on the cross when his body was broken and when his blood was shed for us to redeem for himself a people, to redeem us to God, this people, his church. Christ has redeemed his people. Christ has made his church. It's a work that, in Jesus' own words, is finished. That's good news for us. Later in Titus, uh, Titus two thirteen through 14 Paul put it like this. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Jesus gave himself to, Jesus gave himself to redeem for himself a people of his, to make his own possession. So when Paul says, set into order what lacks, he knows that there's something not lacking. This is finished. The, the church is the people Jesus has redeemed for himself. A local church is a group of the, those redeemed people who gather together for worship and fellowship and to carry out the Great Commission. The redemption is not something that is lacking. Jesus' death and resurrection completed that. It is, it is finished. Here's another thing that's not lacking. We, we do not lack ultimate leadership in the church. We do not lack. That's not something that's lacking. Ultimate leadership is not something that Titus has to put in order. It's already there. It's always there. Ephesians 1, just a passage to help you see this, 1, 21 through 23 says, God put all things under Christ's feet. And gave him as the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus is the head of the church. The church is the body of Christ. And Christ is the head of that body. We are not lacking a head. (laughs) This body is not lacking a head. Titus doesn't have to concern himself with finding ultimate leadership for the church. We already have that. We always will. His name is Jesus. So I think that has some significant implications for the way that we view church and the way that we ought not to view church. This has implications, I think, for how we view this local church, faith, Bible, fellowship, Baptist fellowship. I will get the name right. I'm the pastor for two two weeks. (laughs) It's tempting to view a church the same way we look at, say, I don't think you do this, but it's tempting to look at the church the same way we would look at, say, a corporation or a club. You know, if I've been here a long time and invested a great deal of my energy and capital and time, I can begin to think of the church as my church, my church, or, or together with a certain group in the church, our church, this is our church, and be threatened when, when somebody seems to want to take more ownership of it. An awful lot of divisions in churches, in my experience, begin when someone starts to view the local church as their church, meaning a church over which they should have more influence or sway or ownership because of some set of conditions that they believe entitle them to that. Maybe big giving or a long history or a lot of time spent serving the church. But the implication from the point that I just made that Jesus is the head of the church is that this is not your church— And it's not my church or even our church. Friends, this church belongs to Christ. It's helpful for us to keep that in mind. This is Christ's church. And you can see this even in our text. Look at verse 7 with me. It says, for an overseer. And just by the way, uh, that's another word that's used interchangeably with elder. I think all of those words, elder, pastor, pastor. Overseer, They are all speaking to one office. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. You see, the elder uh, is God's steward. God is the owner. A steward doesn't own things. It's not how stewards work. Steward steward something that is not theirs, right? It's easy for a pastor to begin to view the church as his church, especially after many years of service, seeing the church significantly form and shape and grow under his leadership and influence. And again, since this this is my second week of being pastor for preaching here, it's not a temptation for me at present to view it that way. But I did serve another church for 10 years, and I did see lots of things change under my influence there. I could start to view that as my church, Yet all of my service to that church and all of my service now to this church is as a steward of what is not mine. Steward, God's steward. And what's not yours, this belongs to God. A steward stewards what is not his. The flock, the flock belongs to God. And I love that truth. It is helpful for us. So those are two things that are not lacking. Jesus finished all the work we need to have church, to have a church. He redeemed a people for his own possession, and that redemption is finished. I mean, we proclaim the gospel. We want people to know this truth. We want people to hear the gospel, believe, be converted. But it is Christ who has redeemed for himself a people. The church is not lacking also an ultimate shepherd The church is not lacking a head. The body is not lacking a head. The chief shepherd, the head, is Christ. What remains for Titus to do is to appoint elders in every town. We should make a couple of quick observations from that. First, Titus is to appoint elders in every town. Elders in every town. Not an elder for every town. I think the scriptures are clear on this. God has not designed the church to be led primarily by one pastor but by a plurality of pastors. We could spend a lot of time here. I could discuss the benefits, the wisdom, God's wisdom of having plural leaders, but that's not really part of this passage. Maybe suffice it is to say now that a plurality of, of elders is God's design for church leadership. Second, Titus is to appoint elders in every town. Each local church is to have its own leaders. There isn't really groundwork, and I'm not just being critical of other traditions or anything like that. I just want to say there isn't really groundwork in the scriptures for hierarchy of church leadership that goes beyond the local church. Every town, every church is to have its elders and overseers and pastors. And again, all those terms I think are referring to one office in the church used interchangeably in the scriptures. Some to describe function, others other things, but the one office. So, let's let's do this. Let's spend the remainder of our time considering the qualifications that these men must meet. All of the qualifications listed in verses 6 through 9, I believe, and so do many other commentators, they fall under the umbrella qualification that's mentioned twice, once in verse 6 and then in verse 7. An elder must be above reproach. All the specific qualifications in this passage make clear what it means for an elder to be above reproach. And I think these specific qualifications can be grouped roughly in four categories. And to make it really easy for this church to remember them, I thought we might call them four loves. I really worked hard to find a fifth one, but it's just not here. The four loves of an elder. An elder must love his family. An elder must love others. An elder must love virtue. And an elder must love the Word of God. It's amazing, isn't it, that when Paul begins his list of qualifications for eldership, he begins with family. Family is in view first. At the, at the heart of whether a man is qualified to be an elder is his family. If he is to be above reproach, he starts with the family. Look at verse 6. He must be the husband of one wife, and then his children must be faithful. At the heart of the phrase, husband of one wife, I think Paul means that an elder must be utterly committed and utterly faithful to his one wife. He must have an eye for his wife and for his wife alone. He must love his wife. And I know that much of the conversation uh, in the recent past in the church about that phrase, the husband of one wife, seems to center on whether this past passage just car blanche kind of disqualifies divorcees from pastoral or elder ministry. And I think it's legitimate to consider that question. Likely this passage does disqualify many men because of the light way they have viewed and treated marriages in their past, their marriage. I think that should be Probably considered on a case-by-case consideration, though, not a sweeping one. And I think that because divorce is not Paul's main point in verse 6. I think people who are committed, like never divorced, staying in the marriage, may be disqualified. I think men can be disqualified under this qualification, even if they're not divorcees. Do Do you follow me? I think the point that Paul wants to make here, the main thrust of this point is that the heart of this man, this man who is to lead God's church, his heart must be devoted to his wife. He loves his wife. He's not a flirt. His wife doesn't have reason to question his fidelity or his faithfulness or his loyalty to her. Instead, she feels safe in his love. She knows he loves her, that she is the apple of his eye. He is the husband of one wife. And it says his children are faithful. The word that is that is translated believers in verse six could be translated faithful. It's, the Greek word can go both ways, and because of the context and the way this is put in First Timothy three, I believe that's the best way to understand this: faithful. In other words, I don't think that Paul is saying that the man's children, his kids that are still at home, must be born again Christians. I think what he means is that they must be faithful. They must not be rebellious. They must not be out of control. They must not be unmanageable. And I think this for a few different reasons. One right here in this text, but one also in 1 Timothy 3, 4 through 5, the way that Paul puts it there. Paul said it like this, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And I think that's what's in view in Titus as well. A qualified elder is one who loves his children enough to discipline them, to insist upon helpful standards in the home, one who's willing to enforce those standards for the good of his family. So if you put those two things together... I think at the very heart of this qualification what Paul is saying is that this man must love his family in those ways. Oh, I see so many people good at a thousand things outside of the home to the neglect of their own spouses and their own children. What a tragedy, right? To be successful in everything, but not that, is a tragedy. Successful in politics, successful in careers, making money, but not successful in the things that matter most, not caring about their family. The elder is not to be that. He is to love his wife. He is to be devoted to his wife, and he is to love his children and to raise his children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Paul makes it clear that the man who would serve as an elder or pastor in a local church is one who loves his family. The second category I see in this list is love for others, and I can see that in two ways, the way this works out here. One is in the five must-not-be's that Paul mentions here, verse 7, and then in the first positive thing that's mentioned in verse 8, which I think counters those, he must be hospitable. He must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, a drunkard, violent, or greedy. He must be hospitable. I think those must-not-be's are the vices that demonstrate that he loves himself most. A man who is arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy is a man who loves himself most. He is self-oriented. If a man is proud or quick to become offended or angry, or if he's a bully, that's what the word violent can mean, a bully. And you can be a bully without your fists. You can be violent without violence. If a man is those things, he is self-oriented. Or if he loves his own pleasure so most, so that he is prone to abuse alcohol, to escape the hard things. If he's greedy for gain, he's in it for himself. These are all selfish traits. They disqualify a man who would serve as an elder, for the elder must be hospitable. I think that simply means that he has an eye for serving others not just himself. It means that he looks out for the needs of others. He is intentional about addressing needs that he sees. He is hospitable. He loves others, and he wants to serve other people. That's the qualification to be an elder. And he loves virtue. Literally, he is a lover of good, he strives to be virtuous, self-controlled, disciplined, upright, holy. He loves. He is drawn to what is good and right and lovely. He loves virtue. What are you drawn to, friends? Maybe I can. Uh, maybe I can just get a little pointed. What What does the kind of entertainment you like say about what you love? What does your browser history, or your streaming history, or your screen time, or your calendar, or your budget, what does that say about what you love most? The one who would serve as a steward of God's church must be the one who loves virtue, the fourth love is the love for the Word of God. I think I will leave the meat of that for next week, okay? But in short, an elder must be one who loves the Bible, must love God's Word. He believes that the Word of God are the instructions for life and godliness, that this is, the, this is God's Word to us, and this is what shapes us. This is what we teach. And without the Word, we have no hope, and we have no direction, So, I think that is the briefest of summaries of the qualifications of an elder, the briefest. I could spend a lot more time on this, and maybe I sometime will. But you know what's most interesting about this list? What's most interesting about this list is that there's very little interesting about this list. Do you know what I mean? Like, isn't this just the Christian life? I mean, if you think about what, what what's being described here, what 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 is what, what what is an elder called to in this list that you're not called to as a non-elder? Isn't this what all Christians are called to? Is there anything unique about this list of qualifications that is not simply the expectation of all Christians? There is one qualification listed in 1 Timothy 3. It's alluded to in Titus 1. 1 9 that is required of an elder that is not the expectation of all christians an elder must be as is put in first timothy 3 2 able to teach not every christian is required to be able to teach not every christian is called to be able to teach but every elder is and again we'll talk more about that next week however Every Christian is called to love his or her family, right? Every husband is called to be exclusively devoted to his one wife for as long as they both shall live. And every father is called to raise up his children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Every Christian is called to love others. Every Christian is called to love virtue. Every Christian is called to love the word of God. The qualifications for eldership are mostly the normal Christian life. So let me ask you this, okay? Because now I'm speaking about the normal Christian life. How do I get there, right? Like, if I see this list and I think, man, I don't know that I love virtue. How do I get to that place where I'm loving virtue? Where I'm, 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 I'm loving what is good. I'm self-controlled, I'm upright, I'm holy, I'm disciplined. How do I get there? I have been told that I walk in a very peculiar way. Just let you know that so you don't feel like you have to share that with me at any point. Um, I had a friend who would often share that with me. You see, in uh, in the town where we lived in, I lived close enough to my study that I could walk every day to my office. It was about a mile. And so every day I would walk, and I'd walk right in front of a big college, and a lot of college students were there, and they'd watch me walk. I guess you could see me from some of the dorms. Uh, and every once in a while, someone would say, you know, you walk in a very interesting way. Oh, no, I haven't heard that, but thank you for sharing that. I walk in a peculiar way. I don't know. How do you describe that? Everyone tries to describe, but how do you describe how someone walks? It, it's peculiar, or odd, or specific to me, or whatever. I've just accepted that reality. I don't walk the way everyone walks. A few years ago, I went down to Florida to visit my family there, and my, I was visiting with my dad, and my dad said, and I don't know why this was fresh on my mind, but I was thinking about the way that I walked. My dad said, hey, uh, I want to go out to the, uh, I want to show you something in one of the outbuildings uh, on his property there. So we went out to go, and he led the way, and I noticed something for the first time. My dad walks in a peculiar way. <laughs> Odd, isn't it, that both he and I would both walk in the same peculiar way. Is it Genetic? Maybe, I don't know. Maybe it's simply because I have walked with my dad. You want to walk like the man that Paul is describing in Titus 1 5 through 9? Walk with your father, walk with God, and walk with men who walk with God. And men, you who walk with God, elders, walk with young men so that they see how you walk. In 1 Peter 5, 2-3, through when Peter instructs pastors, elders, overseers, how to pastor well, he said, Be examples to the flock as he's, he, he, don't be domineering over them. Your job is not primarily to tell them what to do. Your job is to show them how to walk. Show them how to walk like your father walks, and show them that by walking that way yourself. There is an embedded call to discipleship in this passage, I believe. We must set the example of loving our families and loving others and loving virtue and loving the Word of God so that others might learn to walk this way. That, elder, is what it means to elder. I hope you feel the weight of that this morning. I feel the weight of that this morning. And I believe that is how we get there, how we become above reproach. By God's grace in the gospel and in his transforming power through his spirit in our lives, we walk with him. And we begin to walk in a peculiar way. We begin to walk like our father. We begin to love virtue when before we didn't love virtue. You weren't born loving virtue. And young men, young men in this room, I want to challenge you I think you should aspire to these qualifications. Believing and trusting the Lord to do that work, whether or not you will one day serve as an elder or not, I want to challenge you, young men especially, but all of you, but young men especially, look at this list and aspire to that, to be qualified to serve as an elder. These are God's instructions for us, specifically about how we put in order what remains. We cannot build this church without these instructions. We need them. This is what we must insist upon from our elders and from those who would be elders. You know, business savvy, management skills, a guy with a lot of influence in society, a guy with a lot of academic training, I think those are like gravy when it comes to leadership in the local church. If someone has those qualities, wonderful. Praise God for those. They can be a huge blessing in the church. But what is required are these qualifications, not those. He must love his family. He must love others. He must love virtue. And he must love the word of God. In a phrase... He must be above reproach. And here is one more bit of encouragement for us as we close. I I, I love this phrase, above reproach, and I want to close by reading another passage where this phrase is used by Paul. This is from Colossians 1.22. It's a different context, but a really encouraging one. God is the one who does this work from start to finish. God is the one who does this work in a man's life so that he might be qualified to become an elder, to serve as an elder? If you are qualified to serve as an elder, you should thank God for the work that God, by His grace, has done in your life. And here's a wonderful truth. God will complete this work in us through Christ. God will. So listen to Colossians one twenty-two. It says, and, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. It is God's work, friends, from start to finish, and He will finish it. He will present you if you are in Christ above reproach because of the work of Christ. Okay, so let's pray. We're going to do a couple of things here. We're going to pray, and then we're going to hear a testimony from Max and Leslie Masters and about the work of God in them, and then we will partake of the Lord's Supper to- together. So let's let's pray together. Father, thank you for this church. Thank you for how you're working in this lovely church. As I get to know this church, I'm seeing more and more of your grace everywhere. I know that that is your work, and I pray that you'll continue it. I pray that we elders would feel the weight of this passage today, that we we would desire with all of our hearts to set the example to the flock, to walk in that peculiar way And Lord, we know that you are building your church, and we know that nothing will prevail against it, and we thank you for that truth. Lord, I pray for the masters now as they come and they share their testimony of your work in their life. I pray that you would give them a freedom of speech. I pray that you would help them to be clear about the gospel and about the hope that they have in Christ and the work that you have done in their life through Jesus and through adoption. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.